0: Welcome to another episode of Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Anahata Ananda, who is one of the first people that I met along my path who actually knew what the fuck they were doing. Uh, we talk about it a little bit on the podcast, but a lot of my quote-unquote spiritual escapades, the first five or six years that I started playing with these ideas, I was doing it alone. And I was doing it kind of stupidly, aka doing some type of psychedelic every week for a couple of months while I was in college and then almost having a psychotic break and then having to spend like six months reading a few books to help gently put my mind back together. But once I got the job at it, and um, I was actually around some people who knew some people who knew what they were doing. She was one of the first people that I met. She was actually the first person that put me through uh, breath work. Which to this day is still one of the most potent practices that I can do to move energy and also to remind myself of how much of a bitch I can become when I don't push myself to do hard things. Because once you do any type of mind-altering breath work once, you realize that you are 10 minutes away at all times from having a complete transformation of consciousness that whatever it is that you're worried about, you remember. And what I like to do on these podcasts is I really like to get to people's core myths. And so we went there because she's been on this path for such a long time. She was abnormally vulnerable. And so it made for a really potent podcast. And also uh, by the time that you guys hear this, I'm going to be heading into the darkness for four days. Um, and I'm scared. So if you guys don't know, this is based off of the mostly Tibetan lineage of doing complete darkness, isolation, alone. The way they do it back in the day it was for seven weeks. But us Westerners, I'm doing it for four days. And the idea is that once you get to about the third or fourth day, so I probably won't get to experience this much, is when if no photons enter into the eyes or are absorbed by the skin, the endogenous production of DMT starts to elevate to the point where you have consistent waking visions that are akin to a DMT experience that's cool. But what really blows my mind is what is the evolutionary pressure that leads to the fact that human biology, when deprived of light for three days, starts to produce the most potent psychedelic that we know about. Like, that is a mystery to me. And that's fascinating. But from a Jungian lens, I'm very curious to go experience this. And I have a feeling that although it will probably be very hard, this is something that I will probably do every year. This feels like this is a very specific Jungian style. Like, I'm really into Jung and I'm really into Buddhism. The darkness retreat, it feels like it's the fusion of those two worlds in a way that a Vipassana retreat isn't, although... I do want to try those too. Graham's in the room right now and he's gotten to that before me and uh, he came back literally capable of walking on water. So um, yeah, I'll let you guys do with that what you will. You know what I'm saying? Um, Also, if you haven't been keeping up, got a new website and I've been writing blog articles each week and I haven't done this in a while. And honestly, this has been the most fun that I've had writing in a long time. And to be frank, I think it's pretty good. So go check that out. If you haven't, there should be probably about four or five new articles up there. And if you want to stay in the loop, get on the newsletter, and I hope you guys enjoy. Anahata thank you for coming on the podcast and to give people a quick introduction to what my introduction to you was was i believe it was about 5 years ago i had just started out on it uh, before then i'd never met anyone who what i would now call is like a space holder or like a person who's trained in that type of arena and all of my non ordinary states of consciousness were done haphazardly by myself <laughs> or with people even less qualified than myself. And thank God I made it through that part of my life. And once I started at it my very first experience with anyone who knew anything about how to travel in that space was when Aubrey sent me to the spirit ranch retreat, which was a collab between it and this awesome community in Sedona. And, That's when I met Parangi for the first time. That's when I met Ashley for the first time. That's when I met you for the first time. And I didn't know what the fuck any of this stuff was. And the first experience I did was this like blindfolded ecstatic dance thing with Parangi. And that was really cool. I kind of got to move the part of me that I told myself didn't exist, but we all have in us. And then a couple of days later, we did some breath work. And that's when I met you for the first time. And there were like again, I think I was like 27, um, completely new to the world of any of this stuff, like completely new to the idea that ecstatic dance or breath work could be anything other than a self-indulgent thing a teenager does or what someone does if they're hyperventilating, just had no idea. And then you put us through a breath work that was actually in tandem with pirangi performing. And... I had as visceral, first, I did not believe that it was even possible for me to do the type of breathing that we were being asked to do for more than a couple of minutes. Like, And there's this wild thing that happens where after like five minutes, it's just a thing clicks and you're just a whole other different type of animal. So I was able to keep the breathing going. But then I ha- the quality of visionary experiences that I had was akin to all, all of the good stuff that is exogenous for most people. And then your ability to weave it into a coherent story that I could actually like take things out of it and like, you know, put it into the proverbial medicine bag. It's one of those things where if you're a complete newbie, you don't realize how good your first exposure to like some great work is until after that point, you go and you experience a lot of subpar art. And uh, in hindsight, I can see that I was, uh, you know, exposed to some high art early. And so that was my first experience with y'all. And since then, you know, we've, co-held space together. has been such an awesome experience. And you continue to be one of the, I'm trying to feel like, what's the right phrase that I'm looking for? Like, you are one of the people that is the anchor in the spiritual community in spaces where a lot of people who try to anchor are like wisps on the waves but like you know I've watched over the years just the anchor anchoring you know in the part of the world that you've got your community in has been really cool and it's an honor to have you on the podcast
1: <laughs> thank you for all the kind uh the kind words and the the reflection back of how you know how our how you experienced our first meeting and it's such an honor and a privilege to be the anchor and to hold space And I think that is the foundation of transformation and healing, is to hold the container with integrity, with presence, with compassion, with power, with courage, with embodiment. Then from that space, the magic and the medicine happens. Then we can go a lot deeper. There's trust. There's the opportunity to weave exactly, as you said, very deeply into somebody's energetic field cohesively, not frenetically, Mm -hmm. not just shaking a rattle and yelling and screaming because it's great to have a release. And if it isn't within a container, if it isn't held with integrity, then it just creates chaos. And the energetic field is left chaotic, even though there was a release, which we can celebrate. Mm. And what I'm interested in is, what cohesive field is left behind the release, and that to me is the journey: is to weave. When is it appropriate? What kind of release? What mm-hmm. will catalyze this? How to put it back together? What? How can I alchemize and shapeshift in such a way that my energy is weaving as medicine and not as a poison? That my ego is left aside, and I'm the hollow bone that allows spirit to work through me, and And hold space, guide healing, guide expression, allow the remembering to happen. And that to me is is real uh, magic. And, you know, having done this for over two decades, watching the nuances of how all of the little details and like total presence and clear boundaries and, uh, and A deep awareness of how to move in someone's energy field in a way that leaves them more whole and not chaotic or disintegrated. But if there's going to be a release, why? And is it the right one? And is it the right time? And then how to help them put the pieces back together in a way that they feel more whole and not just like they were hit by a truck?
0: Right. You You know, yeah, there's a classic example of a trainer who has just like learned how to be a trainer. And the way they train people is to just completely blast them in order to almost like prove to themselves that the, all the time that they've put in to learn the things that they've learned actually can work. I'd, I'd like to shift it back to before, like, uh, you know, like what we do on this podcast is I really like to get into people's kind of like origin story, you know, because the the podcast is called the myths that make us and we're all living an interesting amalgamation of myths. And I really love the origin story of the part of the myth. So I'm just gonna start to uh, seed some questions to you. And the invitation is not to be historically or like literally accurate, but to offer whatever the first thing is that the soft sweet part offers Mm -hmm. up that the mind might be like, well, I don't know if that's right. But so the first question is, Uh, what do you remember as your first memory?
1: I, I, um, I remember having a lot of energy. I remember being in the side yard doing back handsprings. I remember summer days, climbing trees, rope climbing up to the top, um, I remember a lot of vitality and joy and energy um, and a lot of play in my like young before, I would say, before, <laughs> before mm. the things. I remember my my natural essence was very vibrant and uh, joyful and uh, energized. I had a lot of energy, so I was you know, gymnastics and like moving my body felt great.
0: What do you remember as the first story that really captured your attention or interest? It could either be a book or a movie, or even a verbal story that was transmitted through the family.
1: When you said story, the first thing that came up was my own was an, was was one of my own experiences. Yeah. Um, I don't like I don't I don't like I'm not recalling any particular story or book or movie or anything in this moment. Um, but when you said the first story, and I, I would think one of the first stories that shaped me right. is in that playful curiosity as a kid, my, the, the dog that, the dog that raised me, my, like <laughs> yeah. my, my favorite dog, like yeah. my companion, the dog that raised me had puppies. And I'm just a little kid, and I'm just so excited. I want to move like the puppies. We had the all a couple different yards. We had a front yard and a side yard, and and I remember I was wanting to move the and and a backyard. I was wanting to move all the puppies from the side yard so that we could go into the backyard where the rope swing was. And I couldn't carry them all because I'm little. What do I know? So I pick them up by their tails because I don't know any better. Just and it's more efficient. So I'm I've got a couple puppies by their tails just to move a few of them into the backyard and then go get a couple more. And my dad came out and saw me with the puppies, holding the puppies by their tails. And I'm just like, isn't this fun? And his rage, his fury, Eric, like that's the first time I experienced my father in rage. No, well, I mean, he was a hothead anyway, but where the rage wasn't just ambiguous. It was directed directed 100% at me and I dropped the puppies and he's like, you don't pick the puppies up by their tails. Don't hurt them like that. And he proceeds to on my tail, literally spank me like voraciously. And it's odd that that's exactly what he said not to do.
2: Right. Was don't
1: hurt. The, that's hurting the puppy's tail. And I'm like, ouch, <laughs> I think you kind of hurt my tail. Yeah. And I remember, like, because I didn't understand, nobody explained to me puppy etiquette. Right. And I'm just having, in that joy vibrant, like, life is good and let's play. And I remember going into my bedroom and pulling my pants down a little bit and seeing my dad's red hand mark, like, seared into my tail. And it was so, it was such a, like, a mind fuck. because yeah. I was trying to understand the lesson and the why. And I was traumatized. I was angry. I didn't feel safe. I, I, I also had an unfinished job. Like half of the puppies are here, half of the puppies are <laughs> there. And I'm like confused. I'm hurt. I'm shocked. It, it doesn't make sense. I used to be safe with my dad. And um, that was the beginning of not trusting. That was the beginning, I think, of a shift in my energy field of protection and not feeling safe and dimming my light and um, fearing my father for sure. And, and the, be- the beginning of physical, you know, physical trauma and understanding that. And that was at about five, I think, around that age. And that was when, a story. When you said story, like right. your first story, I'm like, done, yeah. got it. Because there was, there was a lot for me to unpack over the years around that and also going to tell my siblings or my mom what happened. And they're like, there's, there was no support or audience for this being a wrong or not safe. Mm. Or so there was a secondary wound, which is not uncommon with traumas that you can't talk about it. Or when you talk about it, it's, it's, It's pushed aside or it's belittled or it's judged or it's oppressed or shamed. Yeah. And so here comes the secondary wound is now I'm not safe in my tribe and my family. Right. And this is normalized. Oh, that you deserved it. So then there's like, oh, I'm bad. So there's like a whole slew of things that began to shift and shape my reality At that time with that story, like a physical, energetic, emotional story that turned everything upside down for me.
0: The myth that comes to mind is the expulsion from Eden, you know, that it's the end of innocence. Because the thing that's interesting to me is the example that comes to mind is before I ever got into a car accident, there was this innocence that I had to being in a car because I had not ever lost control of the car. I'd never been hurt by the car. Once I got into my first accident where I rolled, like I did a full 360 roll. it came down eight embankment and I realized that I almost died. Just being in the car would be so physiologically triggering that I couldn't really drive places for a few years after. I, and it wasn't until I felt that for the first time. And then with my... Body. It wasn't until I had a really traumatic injury where I felt my shoulder come out of its socket where I could, it's like, oh, this is now possible. It's it's now possible for what has always felt safe to just violently be like quickly and violently and without logic and without like, I didn't deserve this or earn this, or I don't even not really understand what the causal effect was that led to this happening. Um, the next question to kind of like expand the story is what was the first peer group that you felt yourself either attempt to be a part of or found yourself drawn into, uh, for a lot of people, it tends to be that we find either like a sport or some type of like play where we are like good enough at it, where kids want us to be a part of it. I'm curious, what was the first, you know, cause it felt like the container of the family was now cracked open, but then children are so adaptive and strong. they're like, well, fuck it. I'm going to go make my own family. I'm going to go find my own, you know? And so I'm curious what, what that was and what age that was.
1: Um, three, when you said that three different kind of tribes come to mind. Um, I, I definitely was avoidant than a family. Cause I'm like, whatever I can do to not be here feels good. I, I like feel safer, yeah. feel safer. And I also had a lot of energy and people were like, yeah, go take your energy elsewhere. you you're hyper and you're bugging. <laughs> and so like, do you want to play? Do you want to go do the thing? Um, so neighbor kids, of course, I want to be at their house. I want to play, you know, anywhere not at home. Um, and gymnastics for me was an outlet. And so, and I was athletic. It was, it built confidence. It built strength. I did feel safe, except when I fell and hurt myself a lot. But it was rewarded there of like, okay, get back up again. So I built a lot of resilience and strength in and validation. But I really just loved flying through the air like that. That was there was there was a lot of joy with that. Um. So I'd say like a gymnastics gymnastics community, and then at like twelve. A lot happened around twelve for me. That was pinnacle, rite of passage. A lot of shifts happened at that age because I was trying to fit in with my my older sisters' community. They're smoking mm. pot and they're drinking, so I started smoking pot and drinking at twelve.
0: Let's go on a pot. Go- hey, let's go. I had go. no idea. Like,
1: why, why wasting time. I was like time? nineteen
0: until I got let's there. Let's dive
1: in let's and go. get explore because I was the youngest. My brother was my brother was dealing drugs out of out of the house, and so. I saw that coming and wow. going. Actually, through my bedroom to get to his room, where all the where all the stash was.
0: So, was it three children, o- oldest um, brother?
1: I'm the youngest, and my brother was the oldest, and I had two two other sisters. I see. And so, so I was there. Was it was like shadow time in my family where my mom was working two jobs, my dad was angry, super angry, and my brother was dealing drugs to 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 help pay the bills. And so there was no like supervision around what's appropriate. So there's like these creepy dudes walking through my bedroom to get to my brother's bedroom. Oh my I go goodness. I all hours of the night to get their drugs. I'm like not feeling safe. So oh. there was this opportunity through the Y, which is where I was doing gymnastics. They're like summer camp. And I'm like, summer camp, like a week away, a whole week away count me in but we of course didn't have the money and they're like well you could sell peanuts to get there I will fucking sell anything <laughs> I will go door to door and I did I sold peanuts peanuts, whatever little cans of wow. fucking tr- trash in a can <laughs> <laughs> um I like, sold my ass off literally so that I could go to summer camp and I found that in trying to fit in with that drug crowd, it didn't fit. It just didn't. Like when I tried to fit in with my sister's friends, like it just did not fit for me. So because then I would do my tumbling runs in gymnastics and my lungs would hurt because I was smoking. Mm. And so I was like, okay, drugs, alcohol, that's not it for me. And like I knew pretty quick after 12, like that's not it. Wow. So shifted out of that by myself and then... Got my way over to summer camp, and this was a YMCA, so it was like religious thump thump camp, you know. And I'm like, at least there, there was honesty. There was safety. They were singing. They, everybody was welcoming. Mm-hmm. There were ethics and values taught about how to be a good human. What what <clears throat> what do you value? And I really appreciated that there was an ethical and moral moral compass that what I was feeling was way absent in my family. And for me to be the youngest, calling out all the adults wasn't super popular. um, You know, wasn't really well received. I'm like, this isn't okay. This isn't safe. They're like, shut up. Uh And so I actually sought out that community and I felt so at home. And there was this blueprint that felt stable and integrity with values. Yeah. And so I dove into that community. And at the end of the week after this, and I was 12. And at the end of this week, I was like, I will do anything to stay here. (laughs) I will wash dishes. I will clean toilets. Like, what can I do? And they're like, you can do all of that. You can go work in the kitchen and i said absolutely i stayed the whole summer eric Whoa. my 12th my my 12th year and it was the best summer ever wow i got to learn how to water ski and i made a lot of wonderful friends and i i found a moral and ethical compass that was so absent everywhere else and i'm like i feel okay here i feel that there's clear values and there's good intentions for my well being, and there's a step. Hey, you, these things, and that, there was like a progression step, and there right. was, there was some. You know, when we started studying the Bible, there were some things in there. I was like, this is some good advice, because I I hadn't. My dad was always swearing. Yeah. you know god damn it so I, was, yeah. I, I think he probably doesn't have the answers right you know so he's quite the atheist and very vocal about it so i knew that like that wasn't the way and i was curious and when i started reading the bible don't 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 tune out cuz there's a there's <laughs>
2: <Yeah.
1: laughs> no like oh shit she's going to thump on us like no 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 um, and there were some really valuable tenets in there for High caliber integrity. One example that I remember out of Luke, I think it was, of like, watch your forked tongue. It will come back to bite you a hundredfold, mm. something like this. And it was talking about gossip.
2: And
1: I was like, that's a pretty good, at 12, <laughs> like, that's a pretty good tenant to live by. Watch 100%. your gossipy mouth. Like, it'll sting you. Yeah. Like the serpent's tongue. And, you know, so I'm reading along, and, you know, after about a year or two of of like exploring this community, and I read something, you know, I know the commandments, yeah, thou shalt not kill. And then I read in like the Old Testament, praying for a successful slaughter in thy name, O Lord. I was like, oh, there's a typo here. (laughs) Because I think they're praying for massive death in the name of God who said, don't kill. And I was like, I think there's a disconnect with like my intelligence of integrity meter was going off. Like, this is not Mm. right to kill in the name of like the law. Like, I don't get this. So I started seeing disconnects in that, in the Bible and in that whole religious community where some things are being said, but this thing is being done, or this is what's in the Bible and it doesn't ring as true. So I stepped back from that community and I'm like, okay, it's not all about the sports. It's not all about the pot and the popularity and like that. It's not all about religion. So I'm going to need to go solo on this one.
0: And I want to zoom in on this part because it feels like this is a very important stage for everyone who's going to get to the point where they start to help people is, What was your center of gravity when you stepped away from the three groups that you were finding your identity in? Because this tends to be the place for a lot of people where depression, anxiety, addiction, these type of things start to swarm in because they don't have a center of gravity. And so I'm curious, what what was yours in that time?
1: It was me. Like, I just... I just was like I'm gonna do it my way I'm gonna study because I want to not because anybody else told me mm. like I, I wanted to be great at sports because I liked I liked it I wanted to be a cheerleader because I want i I'm I'm still a cheerleader to this day mm. because i I I want people to win and do their best and I just fo- I literally followed my heart and I didn't I didn't go into the religious groups. I didn't go into like the, um, I, I was a jack of all trades. I could relate to the people partying, even though I wasn't partying. I didn't have a lot of judgment about it. I'm like, you do you, it's all good. I just, I w- could be in the athletic circles. I could be in the cheerleader circles. I could be in the in the leadership, because I was in like leadership as well. And academic circles, I'm like, this is who I am. And I'm going to follow my own drum and do it my way.
0: And what age is this? Is this like 15?
1: This is, yeah, like 14 to 18. And I'm like, I am clear that other people don't know what's right for me.
0: So not like
1: outsourcing it to a spiritual counselor or like a peer or a parent. I'm like, everybody out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be me. And I don't, I, I really individuated there and had a lot of personal autonomy um, in that space. And I belonged to lots of groups, but yeah. most of all, I was authentic to me. And that would, which is the opposite of what most people are experiencing in middle school and high school. Cause they're lambing right. it up. I was following- like,
0: you were ahead of the curve for me. And the, what I hear from this is I should have started smoking weed much earlier <laughs> because For me, I I didn't get to that point where I could start to taste that type of consciousness where it's like, I'm going to genuinely put my center of gravity within myself until I was about probably 23, which just so happened to be three years after I started smoking pot. So (laughs) this is officially, Anahata is officially telling all, I'm joking. So you get to the end of high school is there a vision for what you want to do after high school? Or Get it, out
1: of town.
0: All right. Like
1: I'm fucking out of here. My parents were like, you know, you could go to city college and we'll pay and you can stay. I'm like, oh, hell no. I will take out student loans. I'm like, thank you for all the support. And let me be clear. My, like my family and my extended family, my grandparents, lots of aunts and uncles and cousins and my siblings Awesome! So many wonderful memories, a lot of beautiful family traditions, but I, I did not feel safe with, with like there was like a whole decade of just distance and anger and not and, and bitterness um, and and conflict with my dad. Although, of course, my greatest teacher, of course, um, and so I'm like I'm out of here, and I went to the the college that I could get into. Um, I went to uh, Santa Barbara, and I'm like I'm just gonna do me. And then I also wanted to, to travel around the world. So I went on semester at sea and people like, you can't do that. And, you know, when people said, oh, you can't do that. Or I'm like, sure I can. And there's this, the inner knowing, I just really listened to my inner knowing. If if I want to go to summer camp at 12, I'm going to find a way. If I want to go to college, I'm going to find a way. If I want to go around the world and it's $15,000, I, I am going to find a way. And I really just leaned into my own autonomy and my own ability. And if somebody said, hey, well, there was peer pressure, like it just didn't land on me. Peer pressure just did not land on on me. Um, And uh, with the overwhelm and the stress and also not processing the traumas from childhood, then in college when I was working full-time and full-time student and having to pay the loans and all of that and keep up with an academic level of a university, a lot of stress started coming in. And that's where alcohol came back in to just numb because I hadn't, I hadn't dealt with the past yet. Mm. And I didn't know how to manage that much stress. I didn't have that kind of stress before. I could juggle it in high school. Like, cause I worked through high school too. Um, and academics and sports and cheerleading, like I juggled it then, but there was there was a lot more demand on me in, in college. Um, and so that's where the partying, more, more alcohol, I would say, came back in as a source of coping with stress. And that like opened up a whole nother, a whole lot of other things for me.
0: So the next question that comes through is, what was the first crying on the bathroom floor moment and uh, elaborate on this a bit. What I find is that people who end up getting to the point in their life where they're in some way contributing to the world in a way where it makes sense for them to be on a podcast. There's a moment where they, you know, leave Eden and they go find the peer group or peer groups that they can really like be a member in. And it it sounded like gymnastics and the YMCA and like school and cheerleading were really those avenues. And then from those peer groups, a vision of what my life could be starts to arise in us. And for me, that got me through my childhood. Like that vision was the vessel that absolutely got me through not being seen and supported in the way that my soul felt like it needed. And it's like, to the degree that the vision protects you is the degree that the depth of the weeping on the bathroom floor moment will be when it breaks. Yeah. Because like for me, it was pro athlete. And it got me through a lot of hard years and then tore my shoulder, got surgery got on pain pills, got addicted to pain pills, gained a bunch of weight, and it was just fucking
2: shattered.
0: And so I, I don't want to get too far ahead of where the story is, but it's like this is the point where like, most people fear it so much that they'll stay in the world that they know is not for them that keeps them from becoming who they could be. And I think anytime anyone can share their process of how they you know, threaded the needle of that experience to then come into the new dawn or the new world, like it's medicine for the people mm-hmm. who are hiding in their cocoon. And so I'm curious, what was your first moment like that? Because it feels like it's going to arise around this time. And what was the journey?
1: Yeah, I, I think that in college... That's when I started buying the American dream. Get Go to college, get a really good paying job. And that was aligned for me at the time. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. I, I can do this I, and um, get married, have kids. And so. And then
0: somehow I'll be saved and I'll never die. It's kind of like. It's just big, like don't re- yeah. don't
1: I bought it. I like, I, I, I think this is for me, you know, and I can do it. And I did it. And I went to New York city, got a big paying job, worked my way up the ladder, six figures. Okay. Married. Yes. Moved from New York back to California. Let's live in Laguna. Life's a dream. Get a fur baby first, (laughs) practice on a puppy, like learn a few things. Um, And, you know, connected with all of our college buddies, just live in the dream, partying on the weekends, working during the week. and, and, the twins came and it's like oh this is perfect and uh, big house big car mhm and
0: what age were you here 30 okay so you had gone and what oh, did yeah. you go to school for
1: uh, i was in com- business and communications and then um like went right into marketing and ah, and I see. uh you know, producing events, all kinds of different things that I was organizing and good at. And so um, I worked for a big six firm and they paid me well. And they're like, I got validated and I got compensated. But I also, my soul was like, is this it? I'm doing well. I'm getting paid. I'm getting compensated. My ego feels great. My pocketbook feels great. But at the same time, I'm spending a lot of money because I'm not in alignment with my soul. I'm. I'm. The values and the the lifestyle priorities are flipped. When I got pregnant with the twins, and this is the I think this is a pivot point for me. <clears throat> At five months pregnant with the twins, I got put on bed rest because my little type A personality is like, let's go, let's do things. I can still work full time, and. You know, travel around. I was managing a whole region, five different states, and I'm just a badass and I feel good about myself. And my twins are like, oh, I think that we're going to sit you down, <laughs> make you learn how to meditate mm. and flip your value system. Mm. Because I just wasn't connected to the fact that, oh, I'm incubating two, yeah. two, <laughs> two beings here. And they're like, you're not getting it. And so they literally, my kids literally benched me. Wow. Which is hard to do for someone <laughs> yeah. that has a lot of energy and like wants to be productive. And I had to learn how to self-calm and learn how to listen and like get in my body and realize, wait, I'm incubating two, two bodies. And if I don't do this well, they're going to be in incubators instead of my body. Wow. And so like that hit me really hard. That I needed to flip my value system and prioritize this instead of work and external validation, and so I'd have to say they're my first meditation teachers, mm-hmm. against my will, might I add. Um, and then the 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 dance of being a a nuclear family isolated from extended family and moving into a neighborhood so that we could have the right house. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know the neighbors and none of my friends had had kids yet. And so the pressure of being an isolated family away from extended family took its toll on, on both of us, you know, as, as parents, um, a lot of struggle, I stayed home full time because my heart, I couldn't, I couldn't leave them. Right. I couldn't. Yep. And I, I remember my dad saying, this is the worst decision of your life. You finally arrived in your career and now you would abandon that to be a nanny. And I'm like, I, I, I knew that he he wasn't the person that I was going to You know, craft my ideal life after.
0: Right, (laughs) (laughs) that's such a nice way to put it.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I knew he wasn't my master teacher, as far as that goes, and like his values and my values not matching here, and so I that was one of those where like nobody knows what is what is true for me, and what is true for me is I'm showing up for these two, and like that began my service, like to these souls are the most important, which created a, a a disconnect with my husband,
2: yeah,
1: because then he felt you know, third. Um, and over time, my husband and I grew apart. Oh,
0: did you call him a husband? I did. That's
1: so good. I did call him a husband. (laughs) And for like, for lots of reasons. And, um, for like, I was super devoted to the family unit, like at my core, that's like, that's solid truth for me. And there were, there, there were only a handful, maybe two or three different situations where I'd be, no, uh-uh. What do you mean? In order to choose a marital liberation, mm. which is what a divorce is. Mm. <laughs> there were just a handful, a couple things where I would walk away. Mm. And one of those showed up, showed up in our marriage. And I was like, yeah, no, no. Mm-mm. Even though we were doing therapy and different things, it wasn't landing. It We weren't getting anywhere. And there were things happening in the marriage that I felt in my reality, in my truth, were out of integrity. And believe me, because I still hadn't healed my core wounds, core wounds yet, I still didn't know how to have conscious communication when there's conflict without blaming or passive-aggressive. So let me put both hands up and say, look, I contributed to the chaos with my own unconsciousness. And he had his part and I had my part. And after three years, the twins were three. um, That's my rock bottom moment is when this particular thing came to light, I was like, no, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And that catalyzed everything. Deep shame about breaking up the family unit, deep grief about the loss of the family unit, hella judgment from the community that you shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And I shut my mouth about the why Mm -hmm. I held this. I harbored the secrets, the secret, um, to protect my kids at the time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, a lot of external judgment from my own family, from my community, our whole tribe there that if I were to say that, to my dear friends, then I know that it's going to come back in an unhealthy way to my kids, and it's going right. to undermine their relationship with their father.
0: Was the quality of the community religious because of the YMCA type stuff? Like, was there a, a couple of our
1: friends? A couple of our friends were like, "You don't divorce," and right. I'm like, "Hmm." <laughs> hmm. And I look a couple, uh, like a, a, a couple of my dear friends. But most were not that. They just didn't understand why. And I wasn't saying anything because that was my choice not to air our dirty laundry in front of everybody. And I didn't think that that was my mission was to support the stability of my kids. And I was like, back to that gossip tongue. Mm -hmm. That's going to come back and hurt me. And it's also going to hurt our co-parenting relationship. But it's also going to come back and hurt my kids. And I was like, not going to do it.
0: Did that generate resentment towards your husband that like you knew it was the right move but you know there's the small part that's like fuck you all these people think it's you know me and it's because you know
1: resentment's a sweet way of putting what (laughs) I felt (laughs) and that's one of the things is that that my the my rock bottom there was that unleashed, it uncapped the volcano of rage from my childhood. Right. From all of the times when I didn't feel safe with men or I felt betrayed by men, the breakups, betrayals, the cheating, the abuse, like it all came up. And I knew from what I didn't want to experience from my dad, like, I never raised a hand with my kids because my dad did. And so one of the things that I think is really valuable that you learn, uh, you know, it's part of the classroom is yes, you can learn what to do from parents or peers. And you can also really valuable learn what not to do. And I was like, don't pass your fucking shit down to the next generation. Right. Cause that sucks. Like I did not need to have that passed on to me. So it happened. Okay. And I can heal from that. And, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pass it down. So I had all of this rage that was part of the post-marital liberation. Like, How am I going to deal with this and not pass it on and also heal enough within me and grow enough within me because we have 15 more years of co-parenting.
2: Right. (laughs) So
1: I can't be a rageful little bitch and throw tantrums because that's not going to support... My kids, it's not going to support my co-parenting, you know, um, relationship, and so I dove in. Like I dove in, Eric, to all things personal development. This no, time? I okay. did not have tools, and that was like I better fucking get the tools. I had started with some yoga, but that was about it. Um,
0: so, what was the first dive rabbit hole into personal development?
1: Shamanic journey. Mm. Like a friend of mine at the time was like, cause therapy I knew from when I was going with my husband, it was just nothing. We were, they were just talking about the tip of the iceberg. And I'm like, can we talk about what's under the water? Can we talk about the real issues instead of like how to ask to have the trash taken out? Like, okay, I get that. I could, my tone could be different. I, I own that. But like, what the fuck can we talk about the real shit yeah. that's happening here? Can we have some legitimate ownership and talk about like core issues instead of the surface layer? It's
0: never about the trash or the dishes.
1: No, right, right. But it's literally about the trash.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> touche.
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> and the dirty laundry, yeah. right? Like, What's let's that? go talk about the real. And I'm not afraid to go there. Oh my
0: God, all home chores are metaphors <laughs> for our like shadow all the stuff. Whoa.
1: You know? Um, so, I, what I did is um, I my friend was like, hey, you know, I've got a, you know, shaman friend in LA because I was in Orange County in Southern California at the time. And I'm like, you know, maybe he could help. And it was fantastic because it was a safe space for the rage to unleash. Like the first, I did shamanic journeys with him, breath work with him, and it just like unleashed the volcano. And but I didn't have the tools to put it back together. And mm. so it was valuable. The shamanic journeying was valuable in emotional release and somatic release, but that was just the start. That, it doesn't end there at all. That's just like when, when, you, you know, when you have an injury, the freedom to be like, fuck, I stubbed my toe. That's part of it. Then you've got to go figure out, or I broke my leg, or I pulled my shoulder out of the socket, or I rolled my car. How do I heal from this is a totally other thing. And so he helped with a lot of the emotional release, but I dove into the healing arts, personal empowerment. I, all of the books, Wayne Dyer, like all, all, of, all of the personal development tools I just dove into. And Books, was there one workshops, book or of-
0: tool or person that stands out the most?
1: Hungry Caterpillar Man. I was right. like, I'll take that. I'll, I'll take shamanic studies. I'm going to go on the land and learn. Uh, like, I'm going to do sweat lodges. I, 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 I dove in. That's the fire element in me that mm-hmm. is like, I'm not going to take this off in bite-sized pieces. Every weekend that I didn't have the kids and every free time that I had, I was... Listening to audiobooks, I was reading books, I was highlighting everything mantras, meditation, cleansing, fasting. I went at it full on. And because I was doing a physical detox, because I also got into raw foods and superfoods mm. at that time, so there was physical detoxing happening. My pineal glands, all of the glands were starting to detox, my organs were starting to detox with the emotional clearing work, now I'm having an emotional detox. So my like second and third energy centers, the, the the emotions, the inner child was starting to heal and the rage was starting to release, which is why I was reaching for alcohol so much, mm. which is not uncommon to reach for alcohol when you're really trying to douse rage, you know, put out the fire of rage Is alcohol is one of those things that is reached for. Um, and so... All of this was being cleansed and purged. Then I was learning these tools about how to how to how to speak, how, mindset, neuro linguistic programming. I was I was looking at the victim thoughts, and I, I was just after all of it. So actually, I was cleansing and detoxifying, up leveling and upgrading all chakras at the same time. I was learning how to meditate and mantras and yoga, cleansing, fasting, all of it. Like I went all in to all of it, full body reset. And it wasn't too long before I was like, I want to learn how to do this for other people. Mm. So then I started training with different practitioners about different healing modalities, breath work, shamanism, hands-on healing, working with divine guidance, clairvoyance. And because I was detoxing everything, what really happened for me that I did not expect was when the crown really opened up and and my consciousness started to completely shift, clairvoyance, which is visual, clairaudience, which is auditory, claircognizance, which is knowing, and clairsentience, which is feeling. All of those abilities came online at the same time.
0: And you thought you were going insane?
1: Yeah? <laughs> I was like... I am seeing things. I am knowing things that I don't want to know. And I was like, I, I became so aware. I was like an antenna. I could tell who was having an affair. I could tell who was having cancer. I could tell that somebody was lying to me. I, I, I could see people's auras. I could see spirit guides. I was like, oh, I I, because it all happened at once for me. And so I also then leaned into how do I use these abilities because they're coming back online for a reason.
0: Did you have an elder or a group to help guide you through? Because that's a state that most people, especially in Western culture, like you're probably batting four out of five chance of ending up in a mental institution (laughs) and being medicated against your will because we don't have a cultural context for helping people through, like we call it mania yeah, and then we're just done with it. And it's like, there are absolutely, there are there's there that if we were open-minded as a Western culture, we could go like do intelligent and smart studies to extract out, like what's the wisdom here? And how can we help guide people through these type of transformations? Because I'll just speak to a period that I had in my early 20s. I didn't have any of these words for it back then. But uh, a perception just came online. And I don't know where it came from, where I was able to feel into people's line in a way where it, it felt like I was stealing from them. And it would actually create a lot of shame in me because like I'd be in the presence of like a peer and I could viscerally feel that they were currently the whole story they were telling was a lie. Mm -hmm. And I could feel like the, like the fear of the child part. Again, I didn't have any of these words for it back then, but it's like, it's like I saw them without their clothes on and they were lying about having clothes on. And just that was disruptive enough where, like, it was hard for me to talk to people. And so, what the fuck were you doing with (laughs) multiple of these channels? 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 25, 23 years ago. um, I was in the personal development. I was going to all all kinds of workshops, trainings, five day intensives, all kinds of things like that. So there was
0: there was at least an intellectual yeah,
1: and uh, I was hanging with a lot of like raw food, like let's be in our highest vibration, let's really be hacking the mental diet and the mental languaging. Around being a possibilitarian, being a positivitarian. That's cool. And like, I've okay, and like really. So I was in circles of vibrant health and but the whole healing aspect, I needed to, I leaned into my teachers that were teaching me about working with my divine abilities. And I was like, all right, I have questions here about how to do this. And so I leaned into that and then kind of like back from childhood is I also had to just trust my truth. Mm. And I knew I could do that. Like I also had confidence in myself. I had to learn different skills that I didn't have before or how, how to harness these abilities, because I knew at some level that it was a gift and it was time and that I was on my path and it was going to be my path. Like I gave myself the freedom to do it my way in, in middle school and high school. And I was like, I'm going to do it my way again, which means I'm going to pull from the teachers and the concepts that feel right to me. I don't have to do this four-year program if it doesn't feel right. And I looked at all kinds of different things and I, you know, someone's like, oh, this is a great teacher. And I felt their energy field. I'm like, no, not for me. Oh, this is a great program. And I was like, I'm looking at the curriculum going two thirds of that is not, is irrelevant information that I'm not going to pay for. Cause I'm also a single mom now.
2: Right. (laughs) So
1: I've got to be mindful not to just get a certification for my ego, but to be mindful as, and I cherry picked the things that lit me up. I cherry picked the teachers, the training and curriculums that, Really nourished me, and when it didn't, I said, This is as far as I go with this with this teacher. And that's what became shamanjelic because I realized with you know, one of my shamanic teachers is that underneath it all, he was wonderful with the release parts, but not on the nurturing or the what tool do you need to not repeat this pattern? What is the lesson here so that you can grow? Out of this frequency, he was just about release. I'm like, I will take that piece. But what's missing is the compassion and the education and the empowerment, the retooling and the inspiration to do it differently now and to pivot and release courageously the constructs, the beliefs, the relationship, the lifestyle, the addictions that don't suit you, that are causing harm, that are leaking energy. So I pulled in all of this personal development. I'm like, here's the tools. And I just, I was like, I want to help people in ways in which I didn't have that support when I was going through it. And had I had the support before to be able to identify core childhood wounding and how do you navigate conflict in relationships or how do you take care of your needs How do you get the support you need if somebody isn't available? Like all of those things are things that I teach now. How do you have clear boundaries? How do you, how do you have conscious relationships? How do you self-care? How do you like follow your truth and, and, and really have the consciousness and the fortitude to follow your soul path instead of everybody else's journey for you or somebody else's story for you that serves them and not you. And a break free of the chains. Like I, I know all the chains because they were bound. Mm-hmm. I was bound by them. And, and one at a time I've been unhooking from them. And it's a journey, still unhooking, still yeah. learning how to love myself more than everybody else. And, and um, so that was the, that propelled me into my own healing, but it also propelled me onto my soul path, which is like, I am here to support the healing and the transformation of other people that are ready for it. And that want to unhook from that and that want the tools to support the love, the going, the shadow work or the the tools to connect to their higher consciousness. And so in studying all of that, it's been a beautiful, full medicine bag of real life experiences, divine guidance, a lot of tools that have been weaving together over the last two decades of guiding tens of thousands of people through transformation, healing, unhooking from all of the things that keep us small. Yeah. And I, and the cheerleader lives today because I'm a <laughs> yeah, cheerleader well, for, for the sure. soul. And, um, that's my mission. That's shine's mission is to to inspire millions to shine. And breath work has been a big part of that in my medicine bag and the one-on-one journeys, the trainings and, the empowerment weekends. Those are all things that give people the tools that I wish I would have had.
0: Yeah. There's, I can feel that a thing that's coming through is um, there's a lot of people who, so the first thing that comes to mind is there's 8 billion people on the planet. The people who you complain about is 0.0000001% of the people on the planet who are doing things that if you knew about and you paid attention to, you would complain about. So the people that you are complaining about, it's for you. It's deeply, deeply, statistically, it's you of, of all the things that you could see. And there are people who, like, I know who I'm close to, who whenever they hear anyone even hint that they coach or that they help or that they lead or that they heal there's uh to put it lightly resistance but one of the things that i've been feeling into is it's like every single person that i know who judges people who actively help people and charge for it you know like who aren't just monks they're all people who work for organizations that they hate. All of them, like all the waiters, all the waitresses, all the bartenders, all the, all the people I know who have corporate jobs. There's this fundamental disconnect between them and the thing that they feed with their time. And that there's some dissonance between what they think they're allowed to do with their life and the fact that they see other people live a life where they do something, where they get paid to do something that they love. And then to zoom out even larger than that, it's like, there is no one I know who looks out at the way Western culture is churning and is like, yeah, I don't need to do anything. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going just right. And I don't have to make any strong effort with my life to try to improve it. It's fine. There's no one I know like that. And so there's a level of consciousness that I think all of us want to get to. And by us, I mean people who help and people who judge people who help. Because the people who judge people who help, again, there are literally wars happening right now on the planet where people are killing other people. There are literally people who are enacting policies in parts of the world that lead to children starving to death. There are horrendous atrocities happening on the planet. But if you took a, if you took a moment to look at what are you actually upset about to the point where you comment online, it's if you see an ad for someone who eerily looks close to how you look is almost the same age that you are, but they're offering something. And, and it's like, On that biggest zoom out, it's, humans are fucking incredible. Most of us are so deeply in pain that we don't, that that the people who have healed even a little bit of themselves, when they see those people, they just want to cry and help them. Because it's like, you are in a prison, but the door is unlocked. And it's like, I, like, and so there's this energy of the, like the Bodhisattva vibe. And it's like, I guess the reason I want to articulate this is because it feels like anyone who is passionate about the human condition, you're going to find yourself at the point where you're actively going to want to help people. And because you live in the Western world, you've got bills, motherfucker. You're going to need to charge for it. And if, 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 if you're in Western culture and your heart's open at all, you're going to find yourself in this spot. Like the only caveat would be if you wanted to create a company from scratch that was truly ethical, that wasn't bound to the myth of infinite growth. That is the thing. That's the cancerous energy that's eating the planet. You could create a company, but it's like, you're either helping heal people or you're creating a new type of company, or I guess like a nonprofit. You know, like if you get to the point where you actually accept the whisper in you about how big it wants to be, you know? And uh, I'm really grateful that you didn't fall into that trap.
1: I I think that I've been that person that's been the hypercritical judge. Mm. And that's being able to see the unconsciousness. And this goes back to one of the things that I learned at church camp, right? Of forgive them for they know not what they do.
0: I love that quote so much.
1: And it's like, well, damn, but what about them? And what about them? It's like, yeah. And when I sit with it, I can find where I've been Them. I used to make fun of psychics. Of course, I used to make fun of all of those things because It wasn't within my capacity to understand at that time. Mm. And my world, my construct is fine just how it is, you know, how it was. Like that's what I was choosing and I was feeding that and I don't want anybody to take that away. And, And this is the part that I think is real, is angelic in the personal development space. This is the part where I think we need to be more, like where there's the opportunity to be more in the feminine. Because when I was in that place of judging those that were closed, one of my teachers, you know, I I was facilitating this event called Cultivating Your Inner Light. This This is, you know, decades ago in Southern California. I didn't market it very well this particular weekend, so not that many people showed up. And I was talking to my teacher afterwards, and I was pissed. I'm like, people need to know this. People need to wake up. And, like, they need to stop being asleep and blah, blah, blah. And he sat there kind of like a Confucius dude, you know, like just, like, stroking his beard, his his chin, and like, hmm, what an interesting use of your energy to hammer open a nut that is closed. Mm. And I was like, fuck. And what he was bringing to my attention is that I can be a medicine or a poison by how I view people, including myself, that have an aspect of them still asleep, which is all of us. So, and recognizing that on my soapbox with a hammer is not gonna be how somebody opens in my presence. Mm. Is that I get to honor and see where that seed is And if it's dormant, it's dormant for a reason. One year before I let go of alcohol, if someone would have tried to hammer that out of my hand, I'd be in prison for sure (laughs) for manslaughter. Like no doubt. Like don't fucking take my last drink. And so there is a level of respect for humanity, which I've come to practice that the wars, the greed, the starvation, the abuse, is coming from a person that is not ready yet to see it? And that's okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And can I meet humanity where it is, not shame them for not for being where I want them to be, or where they're supposed to be, or my heart wishes that they were. Like I get to grieve that I wish humanity was in a different place. I get to grieve that. And it is where it is. And can I be in reality about that? Can I be in neutrality about that, not, have an emotional charge about it. But witness, okay, this is where we are. Mm -hmm. This is where we are. And how can I meet someone? There are people that are ready to open. Because my teacher was like, look, you had four people there. Give everything, Mm -hmm. everything. Answer all their questions. Give everything into that little flower that is open. Feed that flower. Because that Or that little seed that's open a little bit, if you nourish it, it will become a huge tree that has so much to share with others instead of trying to shake awake all of those others or guilt, shame, push or force. And I was like, oh, okay. Being that vibration of allowing that is, you know, I sat with clients that I know are going to stay in an abusive relationship for a few more rounds. Right. Or stay with an addiction for a few more rounds. And it's like, okay, this is where they are. I'm not here to give them a list of why that's going to kill your liver or he's such an asshole. You got to leave them. I'm like, it's not landing on fertile ground. And can I be in that feminine enough to listen? Where is there an openness? And if there isn't, then there isn't. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Can I just not make it worse? (laughs) And because, because. I have with my hammer certainly mm. made it worse with guilt, shame, anger, judgment, force, you bet. And he's like, What an interesting use of your energy. And then if we're really here to be light workers, we've got to really, there is the opportunity, oh, totally if you're interested, to finesse that energy that right. is in a space of allowing, whether it's with your partner, whether it's with a child, whether it's with a colleague where you're having conflict or a sibling to say, this is where they are. Mm-hmm. And I get to grieve or have my emotions about my my wishing that they were in a different place, whether it's my brother around addiction or my dad around how he would treat my mother. They're not in that place. And they haven't asked me, although I have volunteered.
0: I totally get it. To yeah. be
1: their like steward. Because I've been family. like, no, I'm I'm here to tell you how it is. And like, for some reason, my brother didn't, feel that his little sister, that he didn't vote me to be his sobriety coach, but I voted me <laughs> to be his sobriety coach, but didn't go very well. Or my dad to be his, like, you know, you got to forgive coach. And, like, that didn't land very well. Right. And they've all been great teachers to step into the medicine of allowing and acceptance. That doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean that I don't take action, but I choose how and when and where to move the energy so that it can be solution oriented right. at a time where there is a lot of chaos. And where am I personally equipped? Because there's a lot of places where medicine is needed and I'm not the best one mm. to be equipped to go into that battlefield. There's That's going to be better if it's ex-military right. that is embodied, that can speak to those people in a way That would be would land more than my medicine in that moment, right? And so I'm I'm watching how, as light workers or those that feel when you're on the personal development journey, you're going to be called to make a difference. And are you in internal alignment so that you're making a positive difference?
0: Right. What do you feel is the current? most lively vision for where you would like to see your art, your service, your life, your both physical, but symbolic children, you know, shine. Yeah. What is the living vision for your life right now?
1: It's, it's inspire millions to shine. Like that's an easy one. And what's interesting, if I go back to being a little girl, my mom would come in in the morning and say, good morning, sunshine,
0: mm. rise
1: and shine. And she was giving me a mantra that I didn't know that was going to be. That's cool. Calling my soul mission forward. And now decades later, shine, which is the sanctuary for soul, which you've seen as in, 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 is, is, is a personal development center in Sedona. That is one of my personal soul legacies is like, okay, this is a center where it's a safe space to find your light. Whether that's core healing, you know, you're just awakening or you're in a trauma, having a relationship challenge, a dis-ease, a health challenge, an addiction challenge, you're in pain, in frustration or chaos. Meeting people in that space. Okay, this is a safe space to land if you're troubled. This is a safe space to land if you are wanting to step into your power and to your mission, and uh, train to be a light worker to uh, really, or or if you're just needing the tools to be a better parent or to be a better partner or to step into your soul mission and you just need better tools that you weren't equipped with as a kid because most of us weren't. And so this is a place to learn. This is a place to heal. This is a place to grow. This is a place to serve. And so to me right now, um, shine is a place where I'm really channeling a lot of my creative energy. I'm doing all my trainings, there, retreats and sessions and breath work and have a whole, like just a beautiful tribe of, phenomenal facilitators and practitioners that are serving one-on-one sessions or breath work, sound healing journeys, retreats, trainings. People are renting that space to do their masterminds or their men's groups or their yoga or wellness retreat. Um, And it just lights me up that it doesn't have to be all me that like while I'm here in Austin spending this time with you, collaborating and, and connecting with soul tribe and family here in Austin that shine is still serving. Mm. And so that I know that's that,
0: a cool feeling. Yeah. yeah.
1: And like before I realized there's a limitation, I kept reaching my ceiling, Eric of how many people that I could personally right. connect with because of my physical bandwidth of how many clients I could see in a year. Like I've reached that capacity to the point of exhaustion where right. I'm like, okay, this isn't it. How do I, what's a better way for me to serve? And reach more people is create a space that holds a high vibration of integrity where others can also be facilitating that. And that frees me up to do more things that I love to do, continue to do the things that I'm to serve in the way I'm passionate about, and also then be able to show up for giving back to myself and that little girl that wants to play and adventure and laugh outside and um, show up when it's time years from now when my kids have kids and to be able to prioritize that that nuclear family that I experienced has the support of extended family mm. that I didn't have when I was a mom.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I, that lights me up to, to be creating a legacy experience that is training and teaching other light workers as well to be in high vibration high integrity with a, a full medicine bag of tools to be phenomenal at holding space for the healing transformation and awakening of other people
0: I love that <laughs> a question that I want to try that links to the beginning but also connects it to the end is if you feel into the long arc of your life up to this point and you feel into the movie or the book or the story that stands out the most to you as your favorite story so not the type of childhood stories Mm -hmm. but like a work of art what's the first one that comes to your heart
1: the hungry caterpillar
0: (laughs) beautiful perfect So that the thing that, book, I'm to- that
1: little book where the hungry caterpillar yep. is like becomes a butterfly like that's for sure it and eats candy and 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 cake and says, "Oh, that doesn't feel right and then goes to eat greens and then that's what it needs to really become a butterfly. like that's the journey of transformation. Yep. the butterflies, my you know you know for for my own transformation has been my spirit animal, so the hungry pat- caterpillar legit
0: beautiful for sure. You kind of just did what the next part of the question was. So I'll just explain <laughs> it. Of, of course you did. But the thing that I have found through doing over like 150 of these podcasts is that 100% of the time, if you ask someone, I tend to do it at the start of the podcast, but uh, you were able to cut through it and so it didn't <laughs> work. But I'll, I'm just going to share it to the people who are listening to you as well, is that um, almost always, well actually probably 99% of the time that I've asked this question, when you ask someone what their favorite story or movie was as a child, and then you ask them to tell it to you in the way that they would tell it as a bedtime story to a smart 10 year old, they tell the story. And then when they finish, you just pause for a moment. And then you ask, does that sound familiar? Mm. And what it always is, is, it's their mythopoetic story completely and yours fits beautifully you even use the title of the book to explain you know kind of the energy that you were in and i don't so there's many different cultures that have some type of origin story that have some type of mythological component where we choose our life before we're incarnated and the western world view is like oh those silly, archaic, you know, primitives, LOL. Um, But whenever I feel into this quality of people's mythopoetic unfolding, it's just like, why is that always the case? Why is it that there seems to be a part of us? I'll just offer what I think is going on. I think the blueprint that is like printed on our heart, the moment we come into form, is watching the world through our eyes on our behalf. It's the part of us that dreams our dreams for us that can teach us things that we don't know. Blah blah blah. And as soon as that blueprint part sees any story that reflects a part of its own design, it like it makes us love that thing. Hmm. You know, and it's like that book is tr- like the inner blueprint is like, look, dummy, this, do this, do this, and uh, so. The Hungry Caterpillar.
2: I,
1: I think that it's, we're, when we come into the body, it's it's just begins the journey of remembering mm. and coming back home to the truth, coming back home to love, um, coming back home to self and mission and purpose. And it's, you know, amnesia initially. And then there's the little clues, like the Hungry, hungry Caterpillar or the clue about what's not it. Hey, when you drive off the road, when you get drunk and black out, when you make this choice, that's not it. And it's like little bumpers to kind of guide you back Mm -hmm. to true north again. Um, Because I do feel when I connect to my 5D conscious pre in this body self, it came from the heart of a desire to bring light into darkness. Like I feel resonant with that truth true or not, that's what feels right for this one. And, and I I can sense that as a truth for others that, hey, because I had this past trauma or because I had this past experience, I want to go back and make it right again. Mm. That says, hey, if I was an abusive father, I want to come back and bring different medicine this time and do it different. If And recognizing that in order for me to do that work, to bring more light onto the planet here, then I'm going to need to understand darkness.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to be hurt by that, almost consumed by it, so that if I'm really wanting to bring love, not just love with the people that we love, not just our partners and our friends that like we get along with and that see us and that we're safe with, But to really understand how love can be brought into darkness and transmit it, transmute it, is to understand the deepest aspects of shadow and hate. Like hate to the point that you'd want somebody dead. The opposite of light, the opposite of love, the opposite of life. And I recognize that in my experience here in the earth plane, in my classroom, to become what I'm here to do, that I've got to go feel, not somebody else's rage, but be- because of somebody else's rage, I've got to become to know, taste my own rage and hatred, that I would want another literally to die. And that, of course, my story, in my in my story, in my classroom, that would be my dad, where the hatred so deep that I'm like, go, get out of here. Just be gone, be dead. That would be great. And I I remember saying those words and feeling them to my core, Mm. which is the opposite of anahata, which is the heart expanding. And so of course I'm going to have to study that and to have somebody so beautifully play that role in my life so that I could understand Mm. the depths of the capacity of what love can do First of all, I had to love my little child self because if I go directly to forgiving him now, it's I've a betrayal bypassed. almost to her. Yeah, yeah. then I'm the abuser. I'm mm. the abuser in my wow. own story.
0: Yeah, wow. right. Because yeah. no,
1: your feelings don't matter. The puppy's more important. Dad's more important than you. Like, just validates your unworthiness.
0: That's a great, great point.
1: And I, I, it took me a while to get that because, I, uh, oh yeah, they were just doing the best they did, or oh they they cheated, but blah blah blah. Whatever the story is. It's not about validating somebody else. It's like, okay, let me, let me get with my mm. sadness and mm-hmm. my pain and my anger and my grief first. Let me bring the love inward so that I can come to wholeness so that I actually have the capacity because the wounded inner child does not have the capacity for compassion. They have the capacity for a tantrum
2: <laughs>
1: and their their own needs. That's yeah. it. Yeah, That's it. And, and and, and coming back to wholeness so that I could find that love within myself to then move into that space of bringing light into what was my dad experiences? What was his pain as a child? What, where, how did that get carried into his adulthood and where and why is it overflowing from him now? And is he going to change in this lifetime? Did he? No and so i also needed to be in acceptance about that that this is where it is and this is how he is and how can i love him for where he is and nobody could have brought that no buddha no monk i've trained with lots of shamans like no spiritual teacher ascended master no no yogi has been able to bring the depth of the lesson of experiencing compassion and forgiveness and understanding for the one that has wounded you most
0: Right. They literally have to abuse you more than the abuser from your past abused you in order to even have the option for you to touch that level of compassion.
1: Right. And And hopefully
0: you don't have a guru that they try to teach you that way.
1: Exactly. And it's not a concept that I can learn in a book. Right. Well, of course. It's not. It's something that I have to have an inner standing of. And so if I did, as a soul, say, hey, I want to bring light, I want to bring love to the planet, well, then I'm going to go study darkness right away. Addiction. Not just study,
0: but live. Yeah,
1: yeah. and addiction and abuse and all of these things. I'm like, oh, yeah, getting started early with the studying of the things that block love. And if it wasn't for my dad, I wouldn't be able to bring this much compassion and understanding to the breath work, to the workshops, to the the to clients, to my friends and, and continue the journey of bringing that to myself as well. Yeah. And that, so I feel like that's the journey of, for me is, oh, okay. And then for all of us, we're going to be in this classroom that in order to prepare us for our soul mission, we're going to have the the tests and the lessons and the teachers that bring us those things, usually with resistance at first, you know, You're not my teacher. You're Uh a villain, right? Right. And until there's that willingness, which is totally optional in this lifetime or another, to start to embrace, oh, this is happening for me and not to me. And what's the lesson here, which takes a lot of emotional maturity to look at and be willing to, to see our part in it or see what is this bringing to me. So it's like my dad... And also my husband who catalyzed Mm -hmm. my soul path. Like, Mm -hmm. thank you, brother. Like, thank you for having that, for playing that role for me.
0: There's a lot of people that I know who who have had the point where they've said yes to themselves that they want to start to open their heart or really heal. And then they draw in the just right partner that swirls around them for a few months or a few years and then blows their spot the fuck up. And then they move into all of their, you know, hungry caterpillar (laughs) moment of their life. And the thing that I find that is tough is um, once you've seen enough people go through that transformation... I can feel that when I'm not listening with my heart and I'm just in my head, I so badly just want to tell them like, hey, I know the next four spots, you're good. (laughs) I promise you this is just right. But like I recently helped a friend who is like 21 who just went through a huge, painful end of a relationship. And I could just, because she was so much younger than most of my peers, it made it that much more... Clear of like no you do not help her by trying to articulate like i promise you these are the steps that are going to come and it's going to be great i know this is hard it's like fuck all of that and be with them with your heart that's it in the tragedy of the death of the dream of the relationship or whatever and don't even try to be like I promise you that you're going to meet someone in five years and it's going to make you laugh when you yeah, think about ready it. ready to hear
1: that. Hell no. No. Yeah. And like, the e- you know, I, I notice sometimes, you know, my ego wants the win too of like, I know this, <laughs> I know what's going to happen. It's gonna Don't be worry, okay. I read the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, that's a real space holder. Yeah. I stood next to my best friend from high school, knowing the guy she was marrying was not Mm-hmm. it. But there wasn't a space because it's like, oh, I have to marry this. He's, he's in my culture. He checks the boxes. This is happening. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not here to say anything other than, and I knew, but, and, and I, and not even say, I knew this was going to happen. Right. Cause that's right. the ego wanting to win.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just like, just there for her during the whole marriage there for her during all of the ups and downs, really biting my tongue a lot Listening and allowing her to find the answers, her to make the steps, and there during the divorce, and just that's a space holder. That's holding space.
0: A interesting question that arises for me that maybe the spiritual lens is uh, fundamentally unique, but the example that comes to mind is if I'm a nutritionist, if I've gotten a degree in nutrition, and a person that I love has an illness that I can see is directly caused by what I know about this type of eating pattern, am I somehow culpable by not trying to insert myself into the pattern?
1: My big question is, did they ask you?
0: (laughs) And so the (laughs) thing that... That
1: tells you if there's openness to receive your mastery, your awareness. Because a lot of times I know the better way. Let me tell you the way here comes the hammer. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, and, and it's like, did they ask, did they ask for help? Because that tells you they're ready or they're curious. Doesn't mean they're ready. They may just be curious because then what usually happens is the pounce Okay, you gotta do this. I'm gonna put you on a meal plan and this and this. It's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, right. I'm not ready for you to take my carbs away, asshole.
2: Right. 100%. I was just
1: curious about if I could take a supplement to take my pain yeah. away. So there's that listening as a practitioner, healer, nutritionist, counselor, doctor, or otherwise.
2: Right.
1: Did they even ask? Because you can't be culpable if they are not interested, if there's not an opening. If and, and yeah. if they did not ask, they're not ready and there's this projection of am I taking responsibility for somebody else's choices because when you said culpable I said Mm. it sounds to me like you're taking ownership for somebody else's choices which I'm like nope
0: so (laughs) the thing that I want to offer so I'm playing devil's advocate because the path that I take is the path that you're outlining but whenever I get contemplative with myself (laughs) I'm like hmm And the metaphor here would be something closer akin to if someone is in a depressive depth and they think that the only option is for them to drive to the bridge and jump off of the bridge, is it appropriate to hammer in that moment to go grab them from going off of the ledge? And the metaphor here would be If you can see that someone is in a pattern that if it's not changed, they will die many decades before their biological death would come, like the either if it's through drinking or if it's through, you know, like methamphetamine or something like that. And if it's a family member that's younger, like this is the thing where it's like again I'm playing devil's advocate but I'm really trying to make the argument strong where it's like cuz where I've gotten to is i know that like i trust their soul and i i accept the fact that they might choose to not confront and die because of it than to go back and feel the pain. And because I accidentally took too much LSD during a Christmas vacation and I had to really sit with that for about 10 hours. It's like, but every time that I answered this question for people in the community who ask, I can feel that there's a part of me that's like, this part to me is like, You might be just saying what the current right answer is in the spiritual space where it's always like, you know, but like there's something about like if someone is drowning and there's water in their mouth and they can't ask for help, maybe you fucking still jump in the water and grab them, you know? And I hear the struggle. It's a tough question. I hear the
1: struggle and what's going to come up for most of us in, <clears throat> in that, there are a couple things, guilt and shame. How will I feel if they jump? And the other thing is, is like, what is my story about their life that it's not okay with me if they jump of like their death, their death at this age is not okay. And it's not right. And so then I look at where is my agenda being imposed upon another soul? And that doesn't mean non-action is the answer because I've been on all sides of
2: this.
1: (laughs) I've been on all sides of this, trying to shake somebody awake, try to pull them out of the water. They're like, no, I have a weight on my ankle for a reason. Don't pull me out of this.
2: Mm.
1: I'm not ready. I want to, I want to check out. And I've come to this like space of all I can do is compassionately put my hand here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And if they're drowning and they want it, they will reach up. And if they don't, that's okay. Mm. I get to look at my judgment that says that's the wrong choice for you. Mm-hmm. I get to look at where I'm assuming responsibility, or I would rather you stay so I don't have to have the guilt of you leaving
2: mm.
1: on my conscience. Like, well, that's about me. Mm-hmm. I've had a, you know, a dear friend like in my house staying who I knew was depressive and could totally take her life. And I'm like, I can't change whether she takes her life or not. I've done everything to support, to give advice, to give space, to rah-rah. And it all comes down to she will choose whatever she chooses when she's ready. And I might not like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I get to sit with my fingernails on the chair wanting to rescue her. Yes, because I care. And when I also unpacked it, also because. I don't want her to die on my watch because what kind of friend am I? What will people think? And I'm like, well, that's all on me.
0: Mm.
1: That's all on me. And I resonate as 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 like in my shamanic training, and in my training, when I do like my fourteen day intensive trainings, first course, and it's not for fifteen minutes is clear boundaries mm-hmm. <clears throat> is to recognize. People may or may not sober up. They may or may not change their diet. They may or may not look at their heart in it. They may or not, may not say, I, say thank you. They may or may not kick depression. They may check out. And who am I to say that them checking out right now is not part of their soul mission that wakes somebody else up?
2: Right, yeah.
1: And so I zoom out quite a bit because my hands, I tell you, brother, have been all up in it unsolicited for ego. I know better than you. And I was like, that I got to really pull that back, but it doesn't mean that I don't show up, but I also show up in a way that gives them yeah. the freedom in the space to let them know I care. And that there is not a judgment. I've had clients come that says, Hey, I'm checking out. In fact, it's going to happen next Friday. I'm like, okay. I'm not like, you can't do that. Cause they can. And been in that space of, okay, well, I hear you, talk to me, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Where, wh- Where is it overwhelming? Yeah. And to be that counselor that just says, let me hold space for what you're feeling and why it feels overwhelming. And hey, is there anything you got to clean up before you go? And in that process, is there anybody you need to apologize mm-hmm. for? Is there anybody that, you, is there anything you want to do? Is there anything you want to say before you go? And in that process of cleaning up their life, or saying goodbye or doing things they love, sometimes life becomes savory again.
2: Right, yeah.
1: Sometimes it doesn't. And that's okay too. We are all going to tap out at some point. Mm-hmm. Who am I to say 70 or 17 is not the right age and, or it shouldn't happen in this way. I, I don't know their soul blueprint. I don't know what, who is connected to their journey that is Part of their mission, because you know, one of my one of my, one of the families that I was counseling, it was after their son had passed, and their grief was because they already had his life planned out to have children and grandchildren, mm. but his sole contract was to bring awareness to, um, a, particularly boys, suicide, teenage suicide, like that was his sole mission. His sole mission was not to be a grandfather, not to be valedictorian or any of that, but to make enough connections so that it would shine a spotlight mm. on teen suicide. Okay. Now there's a foundation. Now there's a hotline. Now there's all these different things. And sometimes that's what it takes.
2: Right.
1: And I, I, I see the bigger picture that life, death is not the ending. And I, I still kind of have my feels about it. Right. I can still be like, that sucks, or my human self is like, no, I wish it was different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what am I here to learn? And is there anything that I can do to keep this from happening again? And and is there, I ask my soul, is there something I'm supposed to do right now? Yeah. Because it can be make a call, take their keys. It can be, I ask their soul, is there a way that I can intervene that is the right For thing you. that you yeah. need? And it might be a DUI that intervenes. It might be an overdose that intervenes. And I go into a 5D meditation to ask the soul, how can I show up for you right now? So that I get a clear answer where my ego or my emotion isn't answering.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the metaphor of holding the hand out to the person drowning connects. So thank you for indulging (laughs) the... It's tricky. Yeah. Because that's one of the ones that whenever... It's it's so cool to coach because as I track what's happening in me, as I give an answer, I can find like wherever there's a part where there's not full coherence between what I'm offering and like what I actually believe. And that's one of the ones that when I give the answer, some part of me knows it's right. yeah. And there's that part that's just like chip, chip, chip. You know, it's fucking. Oof. But I think that you did a great job of helping to elaborate it out more. I can feel, and we don't need to get, too deep into this rabbit hole because it would be a 10-hour conversation, (laughs) but I know that where I'm currently developing is from the rationalist point of view where reincarnation is just absolutely not an option to... Um, because of some things that I've read and experienced, there's actually great research out of the university of Virginia, where there's two generation of researchers that have tracked over 10,000 cases of children who claim to remember their past life. And at least 3000 of those studies check out, um, that I can feel that my lens about reincarnation is changing my purview of life and that I can feel that the crux of this issue is whether or not I believe in a continuation of some sort. So uh, it feels like as I start to integrate that more, the last piece of that perspective will click in and it'll be very clear and it'll make sense.
1: One of the courses that I teach, because I never learned about death, dying, grieving, and conscious transitions. Like I never learned about that. It's not so much a Western society concept that we're really good at. And so as part of my, you know, healing modalities and facilitator training, I do a whole course just on how to navigate supporting people through the death process. And grief looks different if it's suicide, grief looks different if it's in war, grief looks different if it's your grandpa you're expecting um, versus a cancer or a childhood or drunk driving accident, overdose, whatever, and like helping If we're going to be in the healing arts, if we're going to be in this counseling role, we're going to come across a rub against death is bad or it's traumatizing. And there's likely some residue about not having a healthy experience around a death, whether it's your dog or your partner or a relationship, whatever it is. And I think that there's a lot of growth there for us as a society to be more conscious and more kind and more expansive with our awareness around the cycles of life and death and how beautiful they are, and that it's not scary or bad. It's beautiful. And that's something that has not been taught to me by a teacher or a healer. It has been watching that process and being, having one foot in this realm and one foot in the spirit realm, guiding souls and creating that connection for people to cross over. And supporting the transition of life to the other realm, whatever that is. And it's so beautiful. And um, it's not that scary for me anymore. And that's come from a lot of beautiful experiences. And so I teach whole courses on that to kind of help people navigate through that
2: mindfully.
0: That's beautiful. And that feels like it perfectly suggests with yeah. the last question uh, that I like to ask at the end of all these podcasts. and it's- If you allowed yourself to imagine that you are waking up to the last day of your life, it's in the future, you're as old as your soul, whispers to you that you want to be, you've achieved and fulfilled the blueprint that was on your heart. What would you do on this last day? How would you wake up? Who would you be with? Where would you be? And could you tell us the story of this ideal last day of your life? And the key is, you know that you will pass at the end of the day in your sleep, peacefully. What do you do? And how do you do it?
1: I The birds wake me up. Uh, I live nestled in, uh, it's either mountains or beach, but it feels in this moment like Forest um and collecting herbs from the garden for tea and the sun is on my face and i hear the generations of my family and my tribe mm. like there mm. it, it's the sound of familiar voices and wonderful smells in the kitchen and laughter from generations of not only my grandchildren or great grandchildren but the community Mm. that I live with and play with and serve with and create with. And there's, there's joy and beauty. There's play and laughter, adventure. There's water and connection. Uh, and it's, it's to me a blissful. It's a blissgasm. Mm. Like, yeah, this is, I smell the pine trees and it's, it's, um, peaceful and alive and beautiful and family and tribes and loved ones are there anyway. And there I've left seeds in them, memories, thoughts, experiences, um, habits, lifestyle that they'll carry that on. And so I know that I, I know in my heart that I've touched millions because that's what I came here to do
2: mm.
1: in different ways and that it looks different for different people and that that has passed down to their children and their children, things that they shifted. That I had the gift and the opportunity to do that in someone's life. And so I can just feel that I've left, you know, fairy desks behind me and uh, I'm good. I'm good to go. <laughs> like y'all take it from That's here. <laughs> yeah. And laughter's, you know, laughter is, is one of the last things that I hear.
0: And if you had a piece of paper it, and a pen, the moment before you blew out the candle on that last day and you got to leave a note to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, what would you write?
1: This little light of mine, <laughs> I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, that's what I would write is, is that. Um, and in fact, a little poem that I came across when I was a, at 12, when things were dark, mm. my Aunt Pinky, who was a thump thumper from, from the Midwest, and, and she's a sweetheart, she'd send the daily word. She put us on the mailing list to send us these, these little booklet that came from the church. And usually my dad would get it and throw it out. Mm. And I was curious about what this was. He always threw in the trash and I opened it up one day and I opened it up to this little poem and it had a little flame with a candle on it, candle with a flame on it. And it said, no deep darkness in the world can overcome the light. A single candle flame will burn against the darkest night. Let all the world of darkness come, resentment, envy, and fear. And like the single flame of love and the darkness disappears. And like, there it is. <laughs> the myths that make her. <laughs> I can't remember a knock-knock joke, but I can remember that.
0: <laughs> wow. I think so, that's yeah. the beautiful place to end. Thank you so much oh. for sharing your story and shining your light. And God bless you. I'm so grateful that you exist.
1: Thank you. Thank you for bringing your light and your medicine. And it's an honor to have Cross Paths and it's beautiful to watch your wings. It's expand your wizard ways and your medicine bag, like be opened and shared more and more every time I see you and grateful to support that continuing and expanding and uh, know that, uh, the sister's always here right by side, by your side.
0: Hallelujah.
1: Yeah.